Welcome to In Search Of, a podcast of the Christian Century, where we go in search of voices and perspectives that inform and expand a life of faith. This podcast is inspired by a line from the poet Rainier Maria Rilke. You see, said the poet, I am one who likes to look for things. I'm your host, Amy Frickholm, and like Rilke, I like to look for things. Sometimes, let's be honest, more than I like to find them. In season one of In Search Of, we are exploring saints and sages, inner and outer landscapes, and the dynamics of searching and finding. A few years ago, I went in search of an elusive 5th century saint, Mary of Egypt, and I write about my quest in a book called Wild Woman. As I traveled across Egypt, Israel, and Jordan in search of her, I ran into a lot of questions about saints, about the desert, about Christianity, and here in season one of this podcast, I'm engaging with people who helped me along the way and asking them some of my questions. My guest today, Gary Nopon, is a consummate searcher in his own right. In the course of writing more than 30 books about food, ecology, and botany, the agronomist, ethnobotanist, and ecumenical Franciscan brother, Gary Nobhan, has explored so many aspects of culture, geography, and environment that I really don't know how to summarize them. He has an ongoing love affair with mesquite, for example, and he wrote a whole book about it. He went in search of the story of a botanist named Nikolai Vavilov, who collected hundreds of thousands of seeds in a quest to end famine. His most recent book is called Jesus for Farmers and Fishers, and zeroes in on religious aspects of food justice that have followed him all his life. But others of my favorites over the years include Food from the Radical Center, about building a food system that works for all, and Coming Home to Eat, in which Nabhan embarks on a most unusual journey to eat from the desert he calls home. Welcome, Gary. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be with you, Amy. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you decided after 30 books to write a book about Jesus. <laughs> well, I think Jesus was, along on those other adventures, I uh, felt that I needed to switch gears for two reasons in terms of the focus of my work with food justice and environmental justice. Uh, first was that I realized more and more that in terms of keeping the hungry fed, Jesus was one of the most most compassionate examples of doing that during his own lifetime. And secondly, the people of many faiths have been the safety net for the poor all along in terms of food banks and soup kitchens and other forms of food, food relief that tend to get overlooked by other activists and even academics who are interested in uh, food justice and food security. And I think that's a shame because faith-based groups have done the lion's share of that work for well over a century in the United States and Europe. And the third reason is, I'm going to say with tongue-in-cheek, that some of my favorite musicians somewhere in their career, often mid-career to, uh, to late career, do a gospel album. <laughs> Even <though laughs> this is your gospel album. Known for rock and roll or, or blues or rhythm and blues. And I figure uh, every writer deserves to do a, 
a gospel album just like every musician does. <laughs> I love it. That's great. You know that your introduction there reminded me of a story about when my son was little and when we would be sitting in church and doing the children's sermon. I remember one year during the summer of bread, as it's called in, in the liturgy, the priest said, as she was explaining everything to the children, she said, Jesus talks about bread, 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 bread. And then my son pipes up and he never talks about ducks. So I wonder if we could talk about why Jesus talks about bread, 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 bread. I love the symbolism of bread uh, for so many reasons. I, I've grown bread wheat as a farmer. I've gone around the world conserving different grains used for breads. And I think there's something elemental about our staple foods that remind us of our relationship to the world in its most visceral and humble ways, that bread is the staff of life. And yet, at the same time, all of us know that our faith is also the staff of life. And so I think in a lot of the parables of Jesus, there's sort of that double entendre going on all the time. Uh, all the imagery with sheep is the same. So Jesus was preaching to people who were in the middle of the worst farming and fishing crisis in Western history up until that moment, the Roman Empire abducting or, or, or kidnapping most of the nourishing foods that were produced in Galilee. And he couldn't directly speak out against power every day in his preachings. So he did it metaphorically. And I think that's the beauty of the parables about farming and fishing from Jesus. They always work on multiple levels. That's why we have so many different and lovely interpretations of the parables that have been gifted us through the ages. And one of the things I loved about your book Jesus for Farmers and Fishers was the way that you go so deeply, just unexpectedly into the textures of first century food culture. It had me wondering in two directions. One is, what does that understanding of food culture in the first century do to help us understand Jesus? And then also, how does understanding Jesus and that rich food culture of the first century help us understand our own context? Oh, you're right on target with that question. In one way, Jesus became incarnate in this world because God so loved the world, not just loved humans, but loved all the fruits and seeds and fish and, and fowl that are part of creation. And Jesus could have stayed remote from all that, I suppose, but he came among us to share in that viscerally in a way that is an incredible gift to all of us, but the most remarkable thing about the story of incarnation for me, that, that God loved the world enough to be incarnate with us in it, sharing the same pleasures and pains that we have in our lives. And so there's that that happened during this incredible farming and fishing crisis meant that he couldn't ignore that. Yes, he cared just as much about people who lived in cities or seacoasts or, or herded yaks way up in the mountains of Asia, but he was in Galilee during this incredible economic and social reshifting of 
all human relations around the extractive industry that we now call globalization. So at one level, he was at a key moment in Western history in our relationship to farmers and fishers. And that's why what he said at that moment reverberates so potently and powerfully to what farmers and fishers are facing today. You could give us, I would love it if you just give us a little bit of a sketch of the kind of rich engagement that you do with Jesus' parable. So maybe just walk us through briefly the parable of the sower and how you work with this in in light of food culture and history and tradition, as well as our current crisis. Well, the parable of the sower has probably been written about by more (laughs) biblical scholars and poets than any other one. And my take, of course, draws on many of those underpinnings, but also has an ecological or agroecological point of view with it. The sower was not sowing a hybrid uniform seed. She or he (laughs) was sowing a mixture of seeds, some of which were suited to barren, low fertility soils, some that did best in the more fertile spots among the rocks, some of which could survive and outcompete weeds, and some of which uh, grew where this land was a little bit salty, as there were there are many places in Galilee and the Middle East where that's still true. And so it's really a story about the meeting, the fitting of each of us as a seed, I suppose, with a place where we're most fertile and productive, can not only survive, but thrive to benefit those around us. And so in my mind as an agricultural scientist, I thought, well, Jesus could have had that seed uniform, or he could have had the place where it was sown uniform. But this is really a story about his acceptance of the heterogeneity in the world. Mm -hmm. And to, to me, each of us finds our own niche where we thrive and can benefit those around us to the greatest extent. And there's perils of mismatches with that. But the ones that meet the challenges of their environment produce 20-fold or 100-fold or 500-fold is in the story. And I think it's a actually remarkably sentient perspective on agriculture as well as on the human soul. And I don't want to give you a lecture on agronomic sciences, but uh, agroecologists are returning to recommending to farmers that they grow mixtures of seeds because of the climate uncertainty and the many other challenges that uh, farmers are facing today rather than thinking that there's a one-size-fits-all solution for all our agricultural problems. So in ways, what I'm drawing on in my interpretation of this parable, in addition to it being a piece of performance art that was offered to farmers, probably as they were going out into the field or coming home from the field, is that it has staying power because it's still so relevant to farmers today. It's, it, it is really remarkable um, to think, to actually take seriously the 
agriculture and land aspects of these parables and then try to read them back and forth between the human, the, the, the soul oriented aspects of it and the land oriented aspects of it. And to realize that we're doing that metaphorical work all the time, all of us. And we see this in a number of other writers on the parables, Robert Kappen's Supper of the Lamb and Wendell Berry's writing about the parables. So I'm certainly not the first, and nor do I reject other interpretations of these parables. To me, it's just wonderful to enrich it, our interpretation of it, by looking at the knowledge of what farmers in Galilee had at that time. And I feel I have an insight to that because my own heritage is from from farms about 50 miles north of the Israeli border, maybe, well, less than 100 miles north of Galilee in the Bekaa Valley of Lebanon. So I grew up with stories from my grandfather and uncles about farming there. And then I went back as an adult and worked with farmers in Israel, Lebanon, Syria, and Egypt. And I think that wonderful opportunity that I was blessed with to get inside their shoes was what triggered me to look at the parables in this fresh light. Yeah, that's a really remarkable quest. I I found it so inspiring. And one of the reasons that I wanted to interview you for this podcast is because, as you know, and probably listeners know, I have been following an ancient desert hermit saint named Mary of Egypt. And one of the questions I've had from the very beginning is how a person eats when they spend 40 years alone in the desert. And um, I thought maybe Gary Nobhan can help me figure out how a person eats if they're spending time alone in the desert. And I wonder about how all of that experience you've had in the Middle East and also in your own desert context in the Sonoran Desert gives you insight into these saintly stories about desert hermits and desert saints and their food and their engagement with the landscape. What have you learned? I, I have to say that my quest to understand deserts began with Wisdom of the Desert book that Thomas Merton wrote about the desert fathers and mothers even before I chose agriculture and desert ecology as my career. And I dreamed of doing a pilgrimage to the desert of the Seti in Egypt that contemporaries of of your St. Mary took as their home in one of the driest parts of the Sahara in Egypt. And I think what that kind of quest does to any spiritual pilgrim is it teaches them patience and humility because you know that the desert's in control of many of the variables uh, you aren't. So it's a little, walking in the desert is a little bit like accepting the the prayer of St. Francis of <laughs> some of the factors judging our or determining our survival are by beyond our control and we have to accept that Mm -hmm. but you also get to really deeply think about spaciousness solitude uncertainty and the uncertainty part of mary's quest and the quest of saint anthony and the other desert mothers and fathers i think is a lot about accepting the uncertainty and that's certainly the key issue that farmers in the Middle East have to face. So 
you learn how to forage wild plants that come up in your field even when the crops fail. So here in the Southwest in Northern Mexico, it's the wild greens, the amaranths and the lamb's quarters and the purslanes that were also common other species like that in the uh, deserts of the Levant or Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And you begin to look at the second fruiting of figs the capra figs that I write about in one of the chapters that are an extra gift of the tree to people during one of the driest uh, months in the desert. Mm. So you, you get cued in very intimately to the variations in the desert because you have to fend with all that uncertainty. And so even a rain of a half inch is something to be celebrated because it can trigger the growth of all those wonderful wild greens. You also become very much an ally to the perennial woody species like the carob tree, the St. John's bread as it's called, or the locust bean is the other name. So that when we talk about St. John eating locusts, most people think of locusts, the insects, but the carob pods, which are also called locust beans, that produce year after year, come drought or come rainfall, and are a staple. Many scholars think it's in reference to a wild staple, even when the annual crops like wheat and barley and lentils and chickpeas and fava beans failed. So someone like St. Mary had to switch minds back and forth between thinking where her next meal might come from in terms of what she could grow near a well or a spring versus what she could get from the wilds of the desert because neither could provide her with all she needed to survive. And that switching, that mental and spiritual adaptability is really how those desert fathers and mothers survived the challenges of the desert. That's wonderful. I actually hadn't ever thought about Mary perhaps finding a a space to sow a few seeds by a spring. That's a completely new image for me. And I think that's wonderful. You know, this idea that she might both cultivate and forage at the same time, it makes perfect sense, of course, but I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm speaking from visiting the Wadi El Natran oases and, of course, the little villages just below Sinai, where even if it's an acre and a thousand acres, it has a wetland or spring. Mm -hmm. Those are considered sacred waters that you care for and you deal with preciously. But when there's complete drought or a locust plague all around you, that's where you retreat to. You are listening to In Search Of a podcast of the Christian Century. You'll be inspired and informed by the excellent writing and thinking found in the pages of Christian Century magazine. Subscribe with this special offer only for podcast listeners who are also new subscribers. Get a whole year of the century for just $19.95. To sign up, go to christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. That's christiancentury.org slash in search of offer. This is to completely shift gears because there's so much of your work that I want to get to and ask you about. So forgive me if this is completely just 
random, feels random, but in a lot of your books, you express optimism for the way that food systems are shifting in the United States, at least. And I wonder if that sense has held. And also, what are the sources of that optimism? Well, the way I read those changes over my lifetime was very much ethnocentric, perhaps in a good and bad way. I I grew up in the 1950s in the Midwest, where the availability of diverse food was probably at an all-time low in the history (laughs) of the world. We grew up on Wonder Bread, peanut butter, and cold-cut meats that were full of chemicals that I don't even want to think about. But at the same time, there were still farming families around us who were putting up their harvest because that's what the depression and the dust bowl had reinforced in them that you're obligated as a christian to hold food back for hard time not just so that you can use it but you have something to share with your neighbors so that kind of midwestern protestant ethic was all around me but at the same time i was from this lebanese syrian immigrant family my grandfather was a fruit peddler and he loved the diversity of fruits that he could pull out of the hat in the Midwest, so to speak. He'd, he'd go 200 to 250 miles from our hometown, getting different kinds of plums and peaches and figs, many of which varieties he was familiar with from growing up on the Lebanon-Syria border. And he taught me to be a connoisseur of a fruit, even when I was just a little tyke, pretending that I was his business partner (laughs) on his fruit peddling truck. And I think when I went to college, I didn't think in the Midwest, I saw the dismally redundant cafeteria food that was being served in grade schools and high schools and even colleges at that time. And I'm optimistic because so much has changed since the 60s and 70s in our acceptance of food from other ethnicities and from other traditions as something that we want in the grocery store every day. So I have friends, and you probably do too, that might make Sichuan food one night, Mexican food the next, Indian or Pakistani food the next night, and Cuban or Puerto Rican food the next night. We have learned to accept diversity in the many peoples around us by falling in love with their foods. (laughs) And, And if that's the port of entry into us being more tolerant and grateful for the incredible ethnic diversity in the so-called melting pot called the United States, so be it. And that's why I'm optimistic that now refugee farmers have enriched our lives and our taste buds in so many ways that they play an increasingly important role in U.S. agriculture. Mm. You've launched a new project in relationship with indigenous communities who live along the U.S.-Mexico border, and I wonder if you could tell us more about this project and tell us about how it might shape our understanding of the border and of the future of the relationship between these communities and our country and ourselves. Thank you. This means a lot to me to be invited into be of assistance to some border communities of indigenous people who've taught me so much about living where I live. And their approach to dealing with challenges like the border wall cutting their 
Aboriginal homelands in half has not been violent protests or lawsuits as much as it's been what they call sacred activism or ceremonial activism. And that's to bring together a larger group of intertribal and interfaith persons and organizations to get across to the U.S. and Mexican government how important their traditions of spiritual practices and places on the border is to their whole way of being and how they feel that their religious liberties guaranteed by the Constitution have been disrupted by border wall construction and the closure of the border. And so these are people who are traditional leaders, spiritual healers, teachers, human rights advocates with experience all around the world who've come back to their home country and found that between COVID closures of ports of entry and the wall being constructed 60 feet tall in the midst of their territory, that it's imperiled some of the traditional practices and ceremonies of their communities, as well as the plants and water needed for those ceremonies. And excuse me, I said 60 foot wall. It's a 30 foot metal wall and the clearing of sacred plants from a 60 foot swath along the border next to the wall. And so what is Healing the Border? What are the kinds of things that are going on and and what's your role in it? My, my wife and I are two of the three facilitators who found support from a wonderful foundation, Calliopeia Foundation, to bring these Native American voices together from transborder communities and document their concerns about their religious freedoms and uh, gathering practices being disrupted, their pilgrimage routes across the border being disrupted. Then we filed complaints with the government on the basis of that documentation that are still being processed and uh, led to some federal investigations on both sides of the border. But more importantly, we're bringing people together from these tribes who are really suffering a lot of post-traumatic stress of seeing their, their lands and their communities divided by the wall together for ceremonies, one where youth from both sides of the border, indigenous runners, ran 35 miles from springs on either side of the border to meet at the border and with border patrol permission, exchange spring waters to rejuvenate the springs that have been depleted by groundwater pumping for cement mixing to build the wall. So they had seen a real decline in the waters in their sacred springs, and this was emotionally and spiritually disturbing to them. And at the same time, I've helped in my way as a writer to get their voices into papers and magazines across the country from uh, Indian Country Today to The Guardian to Arizona Republic and Franciscan Action, Cultural Survival Quarterly, National Catholic Reporter, a whole variety of religious and secular newspapers and magazines 
that are read by people who care about these issues. That constitutionally guaranteed religious liberties is not just for those of us who profess uh, Christian faith, but for all people that, of any faith, and that as Christians we have an obligation to support them uh, in in maintaining their own spiritual traditions. Many of them are Catholic or Presbyterian in addition to practicing their native spirituality. So this means even more to me because it's not an either or situation, but honoring the earliest Catholic traditions in the region, as well as the much older Native American spiritual traditions. Tell us a little bit about your efforts to give the saguaro cactus juridical personhood. I have received the final resolution passed unanimously by the Sanavir district of the Tohono O'odham Nation that's just south of Tucson, a wonderful group of political leaders and activists have guided that community over the last 20 or 30 years into all kinds of humanitarian and community service projects. And because they have held on to ancient stories about how the first saguaro cactus was transformed from a young child of their people, uh, they have maintained an ethics of never harming saguaro cacti, which, of course, you know, look very much like humans. They have arms above their waists, if, if cacti have waists, and noble postures that look very human-like. And so they also use the fruit of this cactus to make sacramental wine that they share at a rain-bringing ceremony. And as one person said, without maintaining that ceremony that requires cactus fruit to be harvested during the hottest time of the year, and they were granted the right to harvest that in national parks by Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1938, without access to the plants, that have now been destroyed along the border, it's really damaging their rain-bringing tradition upon which their agriculture is based. So the, the point is they, they affirm two districts now, and they're bringing it to the tribal council vote and then to other tribes to give personhood, as you said, the technical terms, juridical personhood, that these cacti have the rights equal to human beings. We've given those rights to corporations, <laughs> but we haven't given them to the sacred plants and animals upon which our many faith traditions depend. So this is trying to inspire people to look at the world in a different way is one way of saying it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's one of those eye-opening or awakening ways of shifting understanding. So I was really inspired by it, and it does teach you to look differently at the world, I think. I have to say that I feel so blessed as a person living in the desert to have willing guidance from elders of several different Indian nations that live in north and south of the border. They have such a, a spiritual depth we have this paradox of indigenous people who maintain their own faith traditions and embrace Catholicism can be extraordinary bridges in helping us understand the perennial traditions that are shared 
by people all around the world that we're not in an either or of one religion against another. But this is a time where Christians, I feel, have an obligation to show support for the many sacred places across this country being damaged by pipelines and border walls and a variety of other corporate or federal actions that are avoidable. We're not enemies with any of of the people who feel they're obligated to do their projects. In fact, at one of these healing ceremonies, the Native leaders made a special effort to offer those people forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your other name, Brother Coyote. That's at the beginning <laughs> of your book. Um, where, where did well, this name come from and, and what does it mean? Well, uh, among many of the peoples in the Southwest, not just Native Americans, but Hispanics and Anglos, coyotes are the iconic trickster figures. The ones that uh, wake us up to the absurdities in the world. The, the stories about them are often coyote making moral or ethical mistakes that all the rest of us can learn from. It's a gentle way of personifying another animal to teach children what we should not do. And most of the mistakes that coyotes make in these stories are terribly funny. (laughs) And because humor is another bridge among cultures, when, when I've been, what should I say, fooling around or playing comedian among them, they compared me to Coyote for my ridiculous, absurd gestures and tricks. And so when the Franciscan order told me that I had to take a new name when I became a full member of the order and professed. I thought St. Francis of Assisi blessed Brother Wolf as a member of his community and made peace with the wolf, maybe by calling myself Brother Coyote here in the new world, that kind of gesture and feeling that the brothers and sisters on the Franciscan path may not just be human beings, but Hmm. um, all kinds of wild lives uh, around us. So it's basically a way to Americanize the old idea of St. Francis that the wolf uh, Canis Lupus can be a brother. And here in the Americas, its counterpart in in a lot of stories is Canis Latrans, the the coyote that extends across two-thirds of North America. Wonderful. Thank you, Gary. This is such a delight to talk with you about your many projects and many commitments that are so exciting and really transformative. So I'm grateful for your time and your energy that you've given to this interview. And I look forward to delving more deeply into Jesus for farmers and fishers and (laughs) into whatever else comes next. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been a podcast production of the Christian Century, thoughtful, progressive Christian magazine of theology, politics, and culture. Visit us at christiancentury.org slash in search of to find show notes for this episode, to sign up for our weekly newsletter, and to find all the episodes of the podcast. This podcast is produced by Steve Thorngate. Editorial assistance has been provided by Annalisa Burns and Amy Adams. Special thanks to Kyle Peterson for theme music. The Christian Century is an independent, not-for-profit organization that relies on donations and subscriptions to create rich content like this podcast. Have you considered making a donation to the Century? Is your magazine subscription up to date? 
Visit ChristianCentury.org to make a donation and subscribe today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.